Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Vote 2019 edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, day seven of the campaign, a day where the parties all focused on affordability issues. We'll get expert views on maternity leave benefits and affordable housing. And we'll also talk about social media, foreign interference, and what to watch for. But first, our day seven campaign primer. Hi. Jagmeet, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How's it going? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh began his day in the nation's capital with a promise to provide more affordable housing, 500,000 new units over the next decade, with an immediate cash infusion of $5 billion in the first year of an NDP government. Where would that money come from? Singh says better choices. Looking at the past year, I just want to give you the contrast. The previous government did not give you any sort of budgeting or costing for spending $14 billion to give the wealthiest corporations the opportunity to buy corporate jets and limousines. That is not a choice we would make. Instead of that $14 billion blank check that Mr. Trudeau wrote to the wealthiest corporations, we're saying we need to invest in housing. Uh, that is a contrast that we have. Instead of buying a pipeline for $4.5 billion, again, not something that Mr. Trudeau costed out, didn't tell people that how he's going to pay for it, went out and did it. When something's a priority, Mr. Trudeau seems to go out and do it. Uh, but it hasn't been a priority to make people's lives better. And Singh isn't promising a timeline to erase the deficit, just different priorities for the deficit spending. We have laid out a path for us to use a budget seriously and to take people's budgets very seriously and a path to increase revenue and to make, in, make investments in people. Uh, we want to take the budget very seriously and we'll look at what that means in the future. But right now our priority is investing in some of the crises that people are going through. In St. John's, Newfoundland, the Liberal leader promised a suite of new measures to help new parents, an increase in the Canada Child Benefit of 15% for children under the age of one, giving some families up to $1,000 a year more. He's also promising to remove tax deductions from maternity and parental leave payments from employment insurance, making those payments tax-free at source. That's an attempt to better the recent Conservative pledge of non-refundable 15% tax credits on EI maternity benefits. Trudeau is also promising to create a new guaranteed paid family leave for new parents who don't qualify for paid leave through EI or have low income or haven't worked enough hours. And there's a promise of a new 15-week leave for parents who adopt. The Liberals say the new measures would cost the government $1.2 billion a year by 2023, but there's no independent costing from Parliament's budget officer. Trudeau promises that's coming. We will have a full costing of the Liberal platform uh, with all the great work done by the Parliamentary Budget Officer uh, in due course. That is something that people uh, expect and people want to have. The Conservative leader campaigned in Winnipeg today. Andrew Scheer is promising Conservatives will raise the federal government's annual grant to registered education savings plans from 20% to 30% to a maximum of $750 a year. Scheer, too, faced questions today about his $7 billion in promises so far without any details about how he will pay for them. These are exciting 
announcements that a lot of people realize will benefit them in their daily lives and we will absolutely show Canadians how we are going to get both get back to balanced budgets over a five-year period and ensure that these tax cuts do put money back in the pockets of Canadians. It will happen with plenty of time for Canadians to make their decisions as to who to vote for on October 21st. And that's the kind of day it's been. Day 7 of the campaign. Okay, let's stay with the maternal and paternal uh, paternity rather benefits proposals we heard today. The Liberals also promising an increase in the Canada Child Benefit and the Conservative leader pledged to maintain that Liberal program even if the Liberals are defeated. Right across the country parents tell me that they're worried about how they're going to juggle a career and kids. Whether you've got a toddler or a teenager it's on people's minds. And in those first few months with a new baby when it's a struggle to get enough sleep, let alone get to the top of your game at work, it can be an even bigger concern. No one should have to choose between their paycheck and their family, a choice that, frankly, moms are still confronted with more than dads. People should be focused on spending time with their baby, not worrying about how they'll pay their bills. The Canada Child Benefit is a conservative principle. Uh, Trudeau and the Liberals fought against this very type of thing, this very type of direct payment to families for their uh, costs related to raising children. Uh, I don't believe, I don't trust Justin Trudeau uh, on, uh, on making life more affordable to Canadians. I don't trust him on putting more money in the pockets of Canadians. So we have competing offers on maternity and paternity, uh, paternal leave from the Liberals and Conservatives today. So let's drill down a little bit on those campaign promises and what they might mean for Canadian families. Lindsay Teds is an Associate Professor and Scientific Director of Fiscal and Economic Policy at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, um, let, let's... I guess start with the Liberal plan announced today and this promise to make maternity and parental benefits tax-exempt at source. What's the significance of that tax-exempt at source part? Well, it is interesting language that I have to admit um, we're still, we still need some details on implementation to understand the full consequences of it. Um, so for we know at a minimum, it means that anybody earning maternity or parental benefits will um, receive the full income um, in their in their um, bank accounts uh, when they actually are earning it. Uh, no taxes will be withheld, and more importantly, no taxes will be owed on that income. Uh, and so that takes away all of the tax liability at the federal level. What I'm very interested in seeing is whether or not this means they're changing the definition of taxable income. And if they are, that actually means there will be no provincial tax on this as well. That's a big question, isn't it? It is a very big question and a very important question. Okay, I want to, maybe I want to circle back to that, but let, let me go to the Conservatives now, because they're promising something similar, tax-free maternity and parental leave benefits through a non-refundable tax credit of 15%. So what's the difference between that offer and what we're hearing from the Liberals? Okay, so we're still trying, again, sort out the details um, with the Conservative Party announcement. Uh, that A non-refundable tax credit at, paid at 15% does not make these benefits tax-free um, for, uh, uh, for all women. 
So in particular, women who have earned a higher income before they go off on parental leave and are getting and or are getting the parental top-ups from their employers are going to be paying higher than a 15% tax rate on their income. So for those women, the Conservative Party announcement will only offset some of the income tax owed on that income, not all of it. And unless they start with uh, um, modifying withholding requirements, Services Canada will still be holding back the tax when it's paid, and then you'll only get that benefit at tax time. But we're still waiting to see those details of whether or not they're going to adjust the withholding as well. Yeah, so, okay, that's interesting. So I, I hope I'm gonna ask the right question here. So if I understand what you're saying correctly, uh, how would that apply to the, to the Liberal plan? If the Liberals, are giving you the money up front, uh, but it still counts as income, wouldn't that be treated largely the same way as the conservative plan at the end of the day? So if you're a higher income earner, uh, would, would, if it still counts as in income, what's the difference there? No, so the Liberals are making it tax exempt. So what that means is you will not pay your marginal tax, your, your statutory yeah, tax period. rate on it at all, yeah. period. Um, there's no waiting until you file taxes. There's none of this issues of, of not being able to, to derive the full benefit and then having to carry it forward for several years, which is what would happen under the conservative plan. The liberal plan, it's simpler. It's um, easier to understand. And parents will actually get all of the full benefits in the years that they are actually on parental and, and maternity leave, which is when they face the reduced income. So what are the consequences? You touched on it. Let's come back to that. You touched on, so if it's not, I mean, there's two things here. I mean, how it's treated uh, as income or not for the purposes of the tax form, I guess, and, and whether or not, how does this apply to the provincial portion of your taxes then on that income earned? Well, that's what we have to try to understand. The use of the phrase tax exempt in the backgrounder is, it, I think it's to allow them some, some flexibility here to determine how it's going to sort of appear on your tax form. Now, another interesting and I think unintended consequence is because that maternity and parental leave benefits under that liberal plan will not be taxable, it means that any parents earning employer top-ups um, when they are off on leave will also be facing a lower tax rate on that income because that EI, uh, maternity and parental leave, is no longer factoring into their tax rates. And, um, so there is a, there, there's, there's more benefit here than people are talking about. And could there be consequences as well uh, in all of this for the Canada Child Benefit and how that's calculated? Yes, so that's an excellent point. Again, not knowing exactly what line on the tax form, I know the tax form is really, really complicated, but what line that this income will appear and when it will disappear matters a lot for all of these different kinds of benefits. And it, if it comes out, then families with young children will actually be qualifying for higher uh, Canada Child Benefit payments as well as the GST-HST tax credit. Mm, interesting. Okay, let me, let me get your views, uh, your thoughts on a couple of other things that were announced today. The Liberals also committing to bring in 15 weeks of leave for new adoptive parents. How significant is that? Well, this has been something that has um, been talked about for a while. Um, adoptive parents don't qualify for maternity leave, which is the first 15 weeks that a birth parent gets. Uh, and it's actually considered to be medical leave because, you know, giving birth is, is, is not a simple... <laughs> 
process. Um, so uh, adoptive parents only qualified for the 35 weeks. So to, in a way to kind of ensure that all parents have the same amount of time um, with their child after they, geez, I'm gonna be an economist and say acquire their child. <laughs> but once the child appears in the house, they, they'll, they'll both have the same amount of, of time available. I just have some concerns because um, the, the parent, the, the, the woman who has given birth to the child um, is, is, it's not like those first couple of weeks that you're happy and taking care of the child. A lot of women after birth actually stay in the hospital. I was in the hospital for a week after I gave birth, um, not able to care for my child. So, you know, we still have some inequities, um, but this, this certainly brings us much closer. All right, let, let, let's finish on this. Uh, the, also the promise today from the Liberals to work with the provinces to create a guaranteed paid family leave for, for parents who don't qualify for, for EI benefits. Uh, what do you think of that? that? That sounds like it might touch a lot of people in this country who, who aren't covered. Uh, that would be a big change, wouldn't it? You know, to be honest, that's the one I'm more excited about. This is a really interesting feature. I mean, the problem with e delivering parental and maternity benefits through the EI system is you have to have had the right kind of work, the right number of hours, the right amount of income um, in order to qualify for it. And so we know about 15 to 20% of parents are not able to benefit from the existing maternity and parental leave. So repackaging it so that business owners, the self-employed, minimum wage earners, part-time workers, a whole host of workers would now be able to qualify for maternity and parental benefits so that they are able to use that time to um, uh, spend time with their kids uh, when they are very, very young, which is very informative. It will probably also increase breastfeeding rates. These are all really interesting things. The part that we don't know is what minimum floor level, income floor level, they're going to bring everybody up to. Um, and that'll be interesting to watch these discussions uh, play out. And I guess the other thing to watch for is how easily this can be negotiated with the provinces, uh, which is always a, <laughs> always a challenge. But uh, that's maybe I feel that's, this one will be easy. That's maybe for another conversation. Lindsay yeah. Ted, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. According to the Parliamentary Budget Office, Mr. Trudeau has spent 19 percent less in portion to GDP than Mr. Harper did on housing. 19 percent less. So that means the economy is doing better. Things are, are getting better in terms of the economy, but they're not better for everybody. They're better for the very top, the people who are very wealthy. They're seeing a, an economy and a GDP that's growing. But people who need housing are seeing less investments by this government, by the Liberal government. And that's really troubling to me. Well, let's follow up on the debate over affordable housing in this country and what's on offer from the parties in this election. Sir Somerville is a senior fellow at the Centre for Urban Economics and Real Estate at the University of British Columbia. Good to see you, Mr. Somerville. Thanks for being with me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Okay, um, let, let's start with the state of affordable housing in this country. How big is the gap between supply and demand, and, or do we know that? So, you know, what we know, it really depends on markets. And in places like Vancouver, Toronto, you know, our high-priced markets, you know, we have a, a very severe affordability problem, both for poor people um, in social housing, but also for a lot of middle-income people and, and, and young families. When you get outside those high-priced areas, 
then it tends to be much more of an issue for for people who have low incomes because housing prices, you know, in Montreal and in in the land of Canada and the prairies for people who are low incomes are, are are creating challenges. And then we also have the the problem with First Nations and Reserve where there's just terrible housing problems. So there are different issues for different groups of populations in different parts of the country. Okay, that may in part answer my next question. I was going to ask, what do we mean by affordable housing? I'm not sure everybody gets what that is. It's this broad term that uh, that people use, and we're hearing a lot of it in the election campaign. Uh, affordable housing. Okay, wh what does it mean? Who's it for? So, you know, when we look at housing, we sort of have this benchmark that we think that a household shouldn't spend any more than one-third of their income on housing that is, you know, safe, of appropriate quality, in an appropriate location. Um, and that would apply to a renter. Um, and for owners, it would apply to looking at, the, at their mortgage payments with property taxes and other things thrown in. So it's, it's really an issue of, you know, if you put one third of your, of your income to housing, can you get the housing that's appropriate for you? And so you can see if housing is expensive for people on low incomes, then even renting is a challenge. But then at the, you know, at the other end, if you're looking at first-time home buyers, their ability to save enough money to make a down payment that gives them a mortgage that works puts them sort of in a bind from two sides, saving, but then the mortgage side as well. Sure. Okay. So how, in your view, I mean, how big of a priority has this been for governments in recent years? Has there been a clear commitment to try and wrestle this problem to the ground, and including building more units? So I think there's been, there's been a lot of talk about it, and certainly um, the Liberals with the National Housing Strategy uh, put a lot of effort and put money uh, to it. Um, but, you know, one of the problems is, is that building new housing, if you want to build social housing, is really expensive, particularly in the expensive markets. And it's, you know, going to take more money than we've been willing to put up, and it also takes neighborhoods willing to take more density. You know, and one of the challenges in the high house price markets um, has been that um, you know a lot of neighborhoods don't want to take increased density. When you're looking at the First Nations problems in reserve, that's just a lot of money in places where you know housing can be difficult to maintain and preserve. And so you know we're fundamentally looking at uh, a problem that takes time to solve because you can't snap your fingers and, and make housing, um, and then it's an expensive one to solve as well. So we heard we heard the NDP leader promise today to build 500,000 new affordable housing units over the next 10 years. Uh, does that sound like a realistic promise? You know, I, I think whenever you're sort of tying numbers, it becomes challenging because let, let's say you're, you're doing this in Toronto. Let's say, okay, we want to build, you know, affordable housing. Well, whatever you try to build right now probably isn't showing up for five years at least, right? You've got two years to build it and you've got, you know, a multi-year process on the regulatory side. So, you know, we've created a system with, that that's, um, makes it really difficult to deliver these things quickly. Um, their $5 billion number, um, you know, it it's, uh, would be in addition to about the $15 billion that the, um, the Liberals put in with the, the national housing strategy. Um, so it would be on top of that. But you can see that even when, when you put in $14 billion uh, to a program, you don't magically change the housing equation uh, immediately. What do you think, what is the best approach to building more units that, and I guess what role should the federal government be playing? Because you know, there's lots of options here, right, to how to, how to increase the housing stock. Uh, is, there, is there one model that works best or is, are we, do we need to consider just a combination of, of getting more and more people involved in how we do this? It, it, you know, it's, it's really a lot of different programs and different approaches for different, you know, different communities. You know, the federal government has a role. But, you know, it probably is a better role in terms of 
you know, matching provincial dollars, because fundamentally it's a, it's a local problem, right? Housing is not a, a national policy per se. It's a lot of local policies. It's national when you talk about financial markets and insurance and mortgage markets and those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, you, you'd want, particularly from the NDP, to make sure that their money would be matched with contributions from the, provin the provinces. You'd like to see them working with the provinces. They talked about working with um, low-income providers, but you know the, the, the provinces are really the mechanism where government uh, really interacts with um, with service providers. At the same time, you know you, you you can't run a policy without also thinking about you know young families who are trying to transition from rental to ownership or finding rental housing that's appropriate. Um, and if you're not going to also work uh, and solve some of the problems at the local level with people willing to. Uh, allow more density and allow more supply, you're really not going to be able to solve this problem. We heard Mr. Singh today criticize the, the Liberals' approach to housing policies. He's citing the parliamentary budget officer uh, who analyzed the government's housing strategy and determined that uh, there would be a 19% decrease in the average proportion of GDP spent on social housing compared to the previous plan that was in place. So I guess that's what people are wondering, and I'm wondering what your view is. Are, are we spending more or less uh, than we've been spending in past years on trying to fix this problem? You know, the, the, the actual amount of money is going up. Um, you know, the Liberals put in a bunch of money, but that included you know, um, uh, matching from, from provincial governments and, and a variety of other sources, right? So, the, you know, the total increase, even though they were, you know, committing to a, a program that had a, a large number with it, with it wasn't a, a, a large actual increase. But an important step was there were a lot of programs that were being phased out and sort of, you know, replacing those programs, even if it's not a net increase, was still an important step to take. So, you know, I, I think what you can look at the NDP's position is, well, we want to spend more on something where the Liberals really have invested a lot of time and effort and, and it hasn't delivered, you know, the, the extent of, of returns that I think people want. Um, but that's in part because it's actually a much more expensive uh, problem to solve um, than we certainly have been willing to, to, to spend on. All right. We should note the Conservatives, uh, the Greens have an affordability housing plan as well, and the Conservatives say they'll have more to say about this during the course of the campaign. Uh, Sir Somerville, thanks so much for your time today. Do appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Well, lots to discuss with our panel of commentators today. Susan Smith is a Liberal commentator. Ashton Arsenault is a Conservative commentator. And Anne McGrath is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all again. Nice Thanks for being here. here. Lots to talk about today. The, let, let's talk about the, uh, the announcement today uh, from the Liberals uh, about maternity and parental leave benefits, making them tax-exempt at the front. And Ashton, let me start with you. Uh, the Conservative leader rolled this out a few days ago, um, try, call, calling it tax-exempt, but not at the front ends, where the, there are going to be no taxes in this Liberal plan on the actual payment. So is this a step up from what Mr. Shear was talking about? No, I don't think it is. And actually, it sort of goes to the campaign's theme of affordability. I think all three parties had affordability announcements today. Uh, but the universal tax cut coming from the Conservative Party of Canada, if you actually look at it, and there was research that came out over the weekend, it actually does more for the complete tax base than the announceable that came today. Now, it well, is that's, true. That's the, that's the income tax bracket cut. I'm Correct. Talking, on, on the, on the pater maternal, maternity and, and paternal leave benefits. Correct. What's the difference between yours and theirs? 
Well, I would also say just from a tax st standpoint today, we've had uh, announcements for tax credits in children's arts programs and children's sports programs as well. The reality is the liberal announcement does take it right off the top, so you don't have to work about it after the fact. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the nuance in the policy, but I think you'll see a tremendous number of affordability issues come forward from the conservatives it's throughout big, the duration of the campaign. It's a big, well, the experts we talked to said it's a fairly big nuance, the fact that if sure. it's not being treated as, if it's tax exempt off the top, it's not calculated later when you do, because you can, you can get the, the EI uh, maternity and parental leave benefits and then you could have made all kinds of income leading up to that sure. and then you then you calculate the taxes on that. So, But if it's tax exempt, you don't. But just before moving on, I mean, it's going to cost the federal treasury $800 million, whereas universal tax cuts going to cost upwards of $6 billion. And PBO said that himself. So if you're looking for sort of tax savings over the long term, I think you have to evaluate the policies a bit differently. All right, Susan? I think the difference for parents is when that money comes in the door on maternity or paternity leave, the tax hasn't been taken off. You get the full amount on your check. That's the big difference. The difference with the Conservatives is it's a refundable tax credit that you have to apply for after the fact. So if you're talking about putting money directly in the pockets of parents, uh, that's an immediate uh, that's an immediate benefit. The other immediate benefits that the the Liberals announced today were an increase of the child Canada Child Benefit by a thousand dollars for parents for and children under one. under one. That's another huge difference for families because we already know that the Canada Child Tax Benefit, the Canada Child Benefit that's been in place, has already lifted three hundred thousand kids out of poverty, and that's indive independent people who've evaluated that. So that's going to make a huge difference for yeah, families. They're also talking about uh, extending uh, fifteen weeks of leave to adoptive Adopted. parents as well and, and working on a, a larger plan over time uh, to cover people uh, with maternal and uh, maternity and paternal leave and benefits that don't have coverage. $250,000 childcare spaces including some a 10% reduction on fees for that and including some childcare spaces of the new ones created that would be for people yeah. who have shift work. And Andrew Shear, by the way, said today that uh, they would keep the Canada Child Benefit if the Conservatives were to win office. They said that's, that's basically their idea, and, they, <laughs> and, and you guys have morphed it into something else, but they'll keep it. And, investing and, in education and let me start you that we're going to get to affordable housing, which was the big NDP announcement today. And uh, maybe talk to me about that in in the con in the context of these other announcements. We sure. Can I just to. say on the Canada yeah. Child Tax Benefit, it's important too, though, that provinces, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's the combination really is what makes a big difference. I think so. For instance, in Alberta, uh, when we had an NDP government in Alberta, there was an, uh, a child tax uh, credit there too, and and something like the child poverty rate was cut in half. So I think that, you know, I'm, I'm a little worried about some of the provinces and what they're going to do with, with some of these things. Yeah, and, so, and many of these programs, right, it's a it's a two-step dance to get these things done. Provinces need to play ball too. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I was interested to see, uh, I, I'm happy to see that child care is being talked about. Uh, I, I would, you know, I would point out that we talk about it in every election and we still don't have it. So uh, I would like to see real concrete plans for childcare. I did think it was interesting that uh, just a few weeks ago um, the Liberal campaign said that it was a provincial jurisdiction and that they weren't going to go there and now they've gone there. I'm glad because I think it's really important. I think it is one of the things that has the biggest impact on women's equality and it's a very good economic strategy. So I'm hoping that there will be good concrete childcare plans. With respect to housing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the NDP is uh, is proposing uh, a f affordable housing plan. Um, I think that uh, th that our retreat from that uh, from housing from actually having housing units built and social housing and mixed housing has been a real um, you can see that across the board. You can see it in our healthcare system. Uh, you can see it particularly see it in our cities. Is it a retreat from from uh 
from housing uh, at the federal level. I mean, the, the experts we, we talk to say that, look, at the Liberals have poured money into it, but, but they also say that not much is happening, that it's a complicated uh, thing to get right. It, too, involves the provinces as well. So, I mean, uh, which party can lay claim to being the party to follow on housing? So the Liberals put in place the first ever national housing strategy, and it's a $55 billion commitment. You're right, it takes time to work with the provinces and work with the municipalities, but $55 billion uh, is going to make a big dent for housing across the country. They've also made changes, so that's on the affordable housing front, and they're... Um, and then there's the other side of the housing for the people who want to try and buy their own houses or who are able, right. able potentially to buy their own houses. At, at, at least in the high-priced markets. Sure. Yeah. Uh, no, just overall. There's a first-time homebuyer's incentive that is up to 10% at, at, um, of a certain value of your house, so people have a chance to buy their own homes. And they've expanded that, they've, that cap yeah. on it in Toronto, um, Victoria, Vancouver, and Victoria, the bigger, more expensive cities. So... On one side, the Liberals are continuing to walk the talk in terms of affordable housing for Canadians. And then the other side, for the, those families who are, you know, on the verge of being home buyers, they've got measures in place that make sense for people to be able to do that. Ashton, where, where, where do you want the voters to look if they're trying to figure out, okay, who's the party that's got the right message on affordable Yeah, I, I think this is a two-pronged issue, honestly, and it depends on where you reside, unfortunately. On the one end, we've got sort of affordability, and then we've got the other end, the policy to address that. So I think, from at least from the Conservative Party of Canada's perspective, I think the thinking has always been, let's give more people more money in their pockets at writ large and create incentives for them to save, because unfortunately a, a, a the one reason why people fail to achieve home uh, ownership is because it's very difficult to save and to get that down payment together and that's why the RRSP plan was brought in for first-time home buyers up to twenty five thousand uh, dollars and that's why uh, they want to reduce taxes across the board but there's nothing for affordable housing at all the conservatives have got nothing from and the plan from said today that's housing. coming there's, there's and, can, be, and yeah. Canadians are spending more and more of their income on housing in yeah. some in some markets up to 50 percent which is unbelievable that's really really high and certainly for low income uh, low income individuals it's very hard to find anything I just took a look at uh, you know kind of downtown Ottawa apartments and one bedrooms, you, it's pretty hard to find any of them under, uh, say, $1,600, $1,700 a month. That's a lot of money. Sure. Okay. The, uh, let me talk about something else that's happening, in the, and this is around uh, some criticism today for, uh, for the Conservatives. Ashton, I'll, I'll get you to talk about this. We, we had the RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky today holding a news conference to talk about uh, these espionage uh, charges against uh, one of the senior um, officials in the RCMP, civilian official, and at that news conference she was asked by a journalist uh, whether she wanted the Prime Minister to waive uh, the Cabinet confidentiality so the RCMP could continue to look in to see whether there's a case for obstruction of justice involved in the SNC-Lavalin story. Um, and in that answer she talked about, uh, look, I'm not, I'm not here to talk about that, uh, but the RCMP takes all investigations seriously. Uh, and then this is the the tweet we got from the Conservative Party. Let me, let me put that up on the screen for you. Breaking RCMP confirms Justin Trudeau's under investigation for the SNC-Lavalin corruption scandal. Uh, that uh, tweet was later pulled. Uh, Mr. Shear was uh, at a stop in Winnipeg where he talked about the RCMP talking about an investigation of Justin Trudeau. And I, 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 what's happened here? Well, I mean, the, RP, the RCMP commissioner did say investigation, but she said it in the general sense. Yeah, I think if you watch the clip... I think I've but, heard every RCMP yeah, commissioner exactly, since the but, beginning of time say they take every investigation seriously. But in fairness... The when RC, there's an investigation. The RCMP commissioner didn't say that officers interviewed 
Jody Wilson-Raybould, former Minister of Justice. She also didn't confirm that the Prime Minister hasn't in fact lied about this issue multiple times to the broad Canadian public. And I think where there's smoke, there's fire. And every Canadian believes that this is an issue that should be coming up over and over again because the Prime Minister hasn't given Canadians a straight answer on it, and it's embarrassing. But, but is there a risk in traveling her comments at a news conference into a, a tweet on social media that says, breaking news, the, the RCMP is investigating Justin Trudeau? I think that that's fair enough to say. I think that Mr. Shear probably jumped a bit too quickly, too gleefully, uh, was too excited by this. And, uh, you know, I could almost even see somebody doing that, but to have the leader of you know, the leader of a federal party who is running to be prime minister do something like that, I think it is, uh, it's questionable at best. I mean, certainly there is a story here. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't because there is, and I would like to see, uh, you know, cabinet confidences waived and those kinds of things. I think we, I think there is something there that we need to get to the bottom of, we need to find out about, but I think that that was a mistake for, uh, for, for the conservative leader to do that. And it's catching up to the conservative leader. There's a the tweet from everybody's favorite Scottish um, columnist, a guy named John Iveson with the National Post, and he said, he basically called out the sheer campaign and saying uh, Mr. Shear's developing a habit of misrepresenting the truth. And he cited the John Venables story, which was the UK, that, you know, the supposedly this convicted child killer was going to come to Canada that had been completely debunked. The Faith Goldie story, who's the right-wing one, saying that their candidate, Justina McCaffrey, was not friends with Faith Goldie when we have video of the two of them all buddy-buddy. And now this story. So Mr. Shear's got a truth problem. Um, that his campaign or his campaign has a truth problem and that could catch up with him. Uh, and when you have national columnists calling it out repeatedly, uh, there's a there's an issue there and I think that goes to the credibility of the campaign and is they'll it, have to be careful about that. What about that, Ashton? Does, does the campaign have to take a little closer look at how how they deal with these kinds of stories as they're developing and this is the age of social media right so there's this tendency I think in a lot of a lot of quarters to hear something jump on it maximize it pump it out and then well, I'll admit, I, <laughs> and then read, see how accurate it is I read the tweet and I thought oh my god you know I, I took it as as news uh, because it was coming you know it, it sounded like news right. Sure. We're also talking about a tweet from one national columnist. I don't think it's a large problem, but the reality is, and you will probably both agree with me here, we've got party war rooms watching every single thing that is being said across the political landscape right now. And yes, this appears to be a situation where somebody hit send a little bit too quickly before uh, going through the proper bet. But at the same time, I just want to go back to what the RCB, RCMP commissioner said. She didn't say that RCMP officers hadn't previously talked to the former Minister of Justice. She didn't exonerate the Prime Minister. She didn't get anywhere near that. And I still think there are a ton of questions to be answered here. Yeah, it's not likely the questions will stop uh, for the duration of this campaign they on, on the SNC-Lavalin story. Let me talk to you about something else. The, we, um, you, you know, we're, we, we've got a, a certain polarization. If you look at the polls and look at how this campaign is unfolding, you know, we've got a, a progressive and liberal strength in the eastern part of the country and the central part of the country and a lot of conservative strength out west. And, uh, I think a lot of people are starting to wondering whether we should be concerned about that in, in terms of how the campaign, what we say during the campaign, or I'm, I'm not what I say, but what political leaders say during the campaign uh, in the context of what they want the country to be like when the campaign's over in terms of East and West and what people should be thinking. And let me start, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there are regional differences for sure. And, uh, uh, you know, and I think that in our politics, in our, uh, in our economies, all of those kinds of things, are, and often our demographics are different as well. So I think that there is a concern there. I'm, I worry about uh, those kinds of things. When I saw Jason Kenney raising the specter of uh, Alberta's separatism, 
in a kind of a roundabout way by, by sort of saying, I don't want this to happen, but basically putting it on the table, I thought that was, you know, risky. I, I, don't, I don't like those things happening. And I do worry about the tone of our political discourse. I, I think it's really a, a challenge because you want your leaders to be responsible and to be respectful, but also to distinguish them and differentiate themselves from the others. So it's a really, it is a difficult uh, line to walk. I think that you, that the way that you do it is by sticking as closely as possible to the issues and the policy areas and the uh, the positive offer that you have for Canadians. And is it a con is it a conversation that needs to focus more on the ideas? And like when I one of the examples, Susan, is when I think the Prime Minister was asked about it today, and he, he specifically talked about you know there are Conservative premiers who don't believe in climate change, and and that's that's what he's been saying. And I guess for some people they wonder because Conservative premiers have a constituency; they've been elected by yeah. people in their province, and is it? Is it more useful to talk about the ideas and and not tie them to a party? That's a t that on that particular and issue especially and an idea, election campaign. On, well, and on climate change, that's a tough one because the conservative premiers have banded together and they want you to talk about it that way. If you go back to that McLean's cover with those five white guys and they were the resistance, right? Um, so that on that particular issue, I think every leader has. We've got to find a way to keep the cut to continue to unite the country under common cause and not divide the country. And I think um, it's up to every leader to not pit one side of the country against another, one region of a country against the other. And it's important that our leaders say the same things in both languages. We've had a few leaders, Mr. Scheer included, caught out saying one thing in Quebec on the abortion issue and another thing in English Canada on the abortion issue. But we have, so we, we have, have to we watch have a, that. We have, a, and maybe it's it's the way we run our system, but we have, the polls suggest that conservatives and liberals are, 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 are tied at the top in terms of who might, and that's early in the campaign, who knows what might change, but it, it's hard to sort of get our heads around the notion of what can we talk about that, you know, that doesn't demonize, that, that brings the others along. That but, but that's what these announcements are about, right? When you talk about pocketbook issues and you talk about housing and you talk about childcare and you talk about affordability, that's that's everybody's issue to certain, you know, in, in regional variations. So the governments are doing a good job on that. When we get to the pharmacare conversation, which I'm sure will come we, up in yeah. the course of that campaign, that's a national issue too. There are regional issues. I think pipelines are a regional issue. The environment is a national issue. The one thing that does concern me, in addition, in addition, but, but I go Mr. back to I go back to the prime minister in the last campaign. Conservatives are not our enemies; they're our opponents. It starts to feel like they're their enemies, like in the in the context of the the way we're hearing the campaign. And I'm not, I, I think yeah. that can be applied to different people in the campaign. I'm not singling out, but circle back a little bit here. I mean, Canada is a huge country. There's always going to be regionalities, and I think everybody on this panel wants to see a strong United Canada. I don't think there's any uh, disagreement amongst that. But at the same time, we've got a prime minister that has done some deeply hurtful things to a region of the country. I'm speaking about West uh, Coast folks in particular, particularly in the prairies. And I think you're going to see a fairly competitive uh, Conservative Party Canada across the country. But the reality is, are party leaders only speaking to certain Canadians? I, I refuse to believe that. I think everyone is in it uh, to ultimately improve Canada and as a whole. Well, I, think, I think this brings in, this brings in the there. voting system, though, right? <laughs> I mean, so for instance, uh, if the polls are correct and, and the seat distribution is going to be sort of uh, skewed somewhat, mm -hmm, yeah. uh, it, it would indicate, for instance, that everybody in Alberta is a conservative. We know that that's not true. Right. Yep. You know, so our voting system is a big problem in all of this. Yeah. All right, thank you all. Uh, lots you. more to talk about next time we're together. Take care. Thanks, Thanks Peter.
Canada's chief electoral officer says he sleeps well at night, confident that Canada has systems in place to defend against interference in the election campaign or detect it if it happens. Stéphane Perrault met with reporters today to discuss the voting rules and preparations uh, that Elections Canada has undertaken for the October 21st vote. Here's what he had to say when asked about his concerns about possible foreign interference. I think we have a robust electoral process. Uh, it's a paper process. At the end of the day, it's the voters in the ballot, ballot booth checking a mark, and these are counted by hand. And, and Canadians are aware of what's going on around the world, and they're, they're learning to check their sources uh, in terms of the information. And so I'm very confident uh, that we will have a solid election again this year. Let's spend a little more time talking about concerns around campaign interference and where it might come from and how to detect it and how concerned Canadians are about interference, misinformation and social media. Coming up a little later, my conversation with Sam Jeffers, an expert on who's trying to reach voters and why. But ahead of that, my recent discussion with pollster David Coletto from Abacus Data about election priorities and the concerns of Canadians about the role of social media. Let's talk about, in a moment, the, mm -hmm. the whole social media piece and how we think that might change some of the conversation uh, in the election campaign. But first, let's talk about priorities and right. what will drive people's votes. Start there, and then we'll talk about the social yeah, media yeah. piece as we get into it. So when you ask people, you know, what are the big issues that might drive your vote, what are you hearing? Well, when this campaign starts, there's a handful of issues that, that seem to be getting voters' attention. And so when we ask them what five issues are going to be most important to deciding your vote, uh, we get at the top of the list the cost of living uh, at 55%, the only issue in which a majority of the country uh, picks. It, it's clearly, you know, part of the conversation with, with the parties as well. Uh, followed by health care, access to health care at 42. Uh, climate change and the environment is number three at 39 percent and taxes uh, rounds out the top four at 38 percent. Other issues that are prominent, the economy, uh, poverty and inequality, housing, immigration and refugee policies, government spending and deficits and rounding out this what I call the top tier of issues is the cost and availability of medicine. So these are the issues that at least one out of four Canadians um, say they w they are going to decide their vote, and in other words, political leaders, please talk about these things. Right, and not just that, but but people talk about these things, voters talk about these yes. things in different groups. That brings us to the one drill down a bit on the social media right. piece and the role social media might play in this campaign, and some concerns around that. We're not going to focus so much in our conversation about the potential for outside interference and so on. Really, uh, want to sort of pick your brain on this and your findings on this about how we might see the, the conversation around some of these big issues unfold during the yeah. campaign based on how people use social media, what they think of it, and what they're likely to learn from it. So let's start there. Let, let's start with the level of trust Canadians place in social media companies uh, because that's, a, that's going to be a big deal in it terms is. of policing the conversation right. and paying attention to who's saying what and what's true and what's not true. What well, do they say? Well, I think, I mean, just before I get into that number, I think it's important to note, like, this is not the first election in which we've had social media, but it's, it's maybe the first election in which most Canadians have some form of social media, right. whether it's far Facebook, more prevalent than we've far seen more in prevalent, past right? And more engaged, more part of our lives. And so as a result, what we see on there can influence, right, um, our thinking. The thing is, we've got to a point, though, where most Canadians tell us in the surveys that we've done on this that they don't trust uh, the social media companies themselves to provide reliable and truthful information about politics. Seventy-one percent say they do not trust those companies. And so this comes out of, no doubt, you know, all of the fallout from the 2016 pre U.S. presidential election, 
Brexit, Cambridge Analytica, the, the use of our data to sort of kind of manipulate us in many ways, as well as I think a sense that you know some of these social media companies um, haven't gone far enough or don't have the ability actually to police and control the what information shared on them. So that's the one, that's the negative side. The plus side is, I think, is if 71% of Canadians don't trust these companies right. or what they see on the on, on social media, maybe their filter is going to be a little bit stronger. Yeah, I was going so, to say these 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 might bought not this number might not be uh, a number that's uh, makes us entirely pessimistic. It might right. it might lead us to think well if if their if their awareness is this heightened, they're better judges of what to watch for, right? Yeah, if, if I was if if 100% or 71% of Canadians said I trust social media companies and we know what we do about the some of the content on there, that would be far more worrying, I think. And then you drill down to find out uh, some some information to look at uh, the people followed on social media and how they're yeah. viewed. What did you find? And that's the difference. So the first question was about social media companies. Now we asked about, okay, what about the people you follow? You choose to follow these yeah. people and, and only 41% say they're confident that the information they provide or share about politics is truthful uh, and reliable. So again, while there's, this is an indication that people recognize not everything they see online is real or necessarily accurate, um, some people do, most people don't, um, and again, I think points to the fact that I think Canadians are increasingly aware of, of what they're seeing and I, I, I suspect are going to be a little more discerning, um, hopefully, during this campaign. Yeah, and we've seen some, some surveys, uh, some studies leading up to the, uh, the launch of the campaign that suggest, in fact, the more people get information from social media, the more likely it is through they are to be misinformed about some of the big issues, right? I mean, that's a bit of a concern, uh, but again, speaks to this whole notion of know what you're, uh, know what the information is you're getting, know where it comes from, and those various things. And, and I think social media, some of the other research we do, particularly uh, among younger Canadians who who don't really, you know, watch a, a whole lot of TV or listen to lit radio or, or you know read newspapers anymore, there's a tendency to become isolated from what's going on. So if you're really only interested in hockey, let's say, yeah. you can isolate yourself by picking who you follow on Twitter or, or Instagram or, or Facebook and only get content about that and may not even know, well, I hope that's not the case, may not even know elections going on, right? If you leave your home, you'll notice because there's lawn signs everywhere. Right. But otherwise, uh, there's a real chance that that isolation happens, which allows some people to to be more easily manipulated because you know exactly how to reach them and what they're interested in. This isn't this next one is an ongoing debate we have as a society, right? right. Whether whether social media and the prevalence of it these days is good or bad for our democracy. Uh, what are people in your survey saying? Well, we find that a majority actually say, you know, uh, the political commentary on social media, generally speaking, hurts more than it helps. Right? It's not saying all commentary, all information on social media is bad. But when we ask people on balance, do you think it's a good or bad thing for democracy, most say it's not. And again, this is, there's, there's some consistency at least in what Canadians are telling us, but as a reflection that, um, and I, I think a, a call from a public policy angle, that, that Canadians first recognize there's potentially a problem, they might be more discerning, um, but that doesn't, that doesn't eliminate the fact that it's still going to happen during this campaign. All right, so uh, as the campaign continues, they're going to be bombarded with all kinds yeah. of information on social media. So what do you find when you, when you raise the issue of, of who they have confidence in to provide them with information they can trust about politics? Well, the good and, news and presumably for journalists election. like you um, and, and organizations like CPAC is when we compare 
Canadian news organizations to even government departments, elected officials, or people you follow on social media, you know, you win out on reliable, confident that it's reliable and truthful. 69% of Canadians uh, feel confident in, you know, Canadian news organizations to give them reliable and accurate and truthful information. Now, 31% who don't feel that way is still, I think, high, but compared to even, I think, like government departments and agencies, right, uh, 51%. Uh, are confident. 42% on elected officials and then people I follow on social media at 41%. So all of this points to me, the, you know, obviously Canadians recognize the news media journalists has a role still to play and is a reliable source for that. On the flip side, it shows we, we, we are living in a world where I think voters and Canadians more generally are, are very suspicious about the, the quality of the information that's out there and they don't entrust is at uh, a minimum to some extent. And so that means I think you know, voters are going to be um, really skeptical about claims that are made. It's, it's sometimes harder if you're a political party or a candidate to, to persuade somebody when they're going to maybe instantly discount what you say. And that, that means in terms of quality of democracy, it's harder for us to have you know, adult conversations about public policy when I implicitly not going to believe anything that comes out of your mouth, even right. if you're telling me the truth, right? And that's not the case. But that, that, those kind of conversations, I think, increasingly happen in our more polarized society today. All right. Lots to watch for in that. Uh, David Coletto, as always, thanks. Thanks, Peter. Well, for more on how the 2019 campaign might unfold in the digital sphere and the potential risk of misinformation and foreign interference, I'm joined from London, England by Sam Jeffers. He's a visiting global fellow at the Ryerson Leadership Lab and an expert on digital marketing. He's also the co-founder of Who Targets Me, an initiative to increase transparency in online political advertising, including here in Canada. Mr. Jeffers, first of all, thanks for taking time to speak with me. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Let, let's start with some context on what the social media landscape looks like in 2019 compared to four years ago when we last had a federal uh, campaign in this country. Facebook and Twitter were around then as well. So what's changed uh, the most from 2015 in terms of how campaigns unfold and how voters might be targeted? Well, I think, you know, what we've seen is a big growth in the use of social media advertising, particularly over the last five years. I mean, I know that you know, Canada was pretty big on that in 2014, quite an early player in that in that space. But around the world, it's now become a really common technique for how campaigns choose to reach specific groups of voters. And that means that the campaigns are looking to become much more data driven. They're much more focused on the types of voters they want to reach, the types of messages they want to reach those voters with. And then obviously they'll stick a large kind of wedge of dollars behind that to try and make sure they do that over and over again. Right. So to know what to watch for here, I guess it's important to look at what we've already seen. And, and what have you seen recently in other countries that concerns you about the, the, uh, about the Canadian campaign and what we should be watching for? I mean, I think what we are looking for as is, is Who Targets Me is, is trying to help people really understand why they're seeing certain messages. So what's the underlying data? What's the motive of the, of the people that are trying to reach them with that message? What's the content of that message? How do you interpret it in the context of who else might be seeing it, uh, who might be commenting on it, who might be sharing it, who might be ultimately paying for it? And so, so we're trying to get to a place where there's enough transparency in the system where, where people can really read that material uh, very straightforwardly, in the same way that you might read a newspaper and you understand who owns it and what its political political opinions are, 
uh, it's the same for a political ad. And, and, and that's the kind of level of sophistication we're hoping people kind of move towards. Right. The Canadian government implemented a, a number of steps in this country to fight foreign interference and online manipulation during the campaign. Uh, that includes companies having to keep a, a mandatory registry of digital ads posted by political parties and third party groups and a, a ban on foreign third party funding. What do you think of those efforts? Will, will they make a difference? I mean, I think it's clearly important that you would you don't have lots of foreign interference in your elections, right? Even if even at a small scale, it undermines people's faith uh, in the, in the, what they can see as true and trustworthy, and that it comes from a place that they they can believe in. So I think any measures to try and reduce the amount of influence from the outside are really important. In terms of ad transparency, you know, clearly the new ad libraries that people like Facebook have put together are, are useful and a, and a good first step. Uh, you know, what we think they're a bit lacking is they don't really tell you why you're seeing certain messages. And for us, you know, with big global stories like Cambridge Analytica still out there about how the data acquired to target people was kind of arrived at, you know, we think it's much more important that people understand that a lot more. Like, why me when it comes to a particular ad? And, and is that a fairly easy, uh, is this a fairly easy question to answer? Is it the companies are reluctant to do it or they're, or they're not able to do it? What's the right What's the answer? Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of interplay between the companies uh, and the advertisers themselves. So usually that's candidates and, and parties about how they acquire data, what types of consultancies they work with, uh, are they truly transparent and, and want to explain to people how that stuff has been arrived at uh, and is being put in front of people. So, you know, it, it's a choice. Uh, the default at the moment is to choose not to do that. Uh, and I think we'd like to see a lot more in that regard because it because, you know, one of the areas where people have lost faith in, in, in the kind of democratic system is the nature of these data-driven campaigns and the way that people are profiled and understood and run and, and whether or not they can really trust that uh, seems to be a, a missing piece at the moment. Is Canada setting, in your view, is Canada setting a, a good example for other countries? I, I think Canada has done more than most. I mean, it, it, you know, we've just worked in a number of elections around the world. Um, we're probably about to have an election here in the UK and, and almost nothing has happened uh, in this space uh, over here. Uh, the EU did some stuff for the EU elections uh, earlier this year. The US is looking at some kind of cybersecurity measures ahead of the 2020 elections there next year. But Canada seems to be the one place where there is actual law. And, uh, you know, the, the big platform companies have been doing some stuff to try and uh, kind of follow those laws, you know. So, so it seems like an interesting first step for sure. Okay. Uh, you, as, we, as I mentioned, you helped create Who Targets Me, a service for uh, people to learn about who's targeting them with political ads. And, and it's now uh, available to Canadian Facebook users. Facebook's promised more oversight and transparency for paid political ads. You've sort of uh, touched on some of the issues there uh, during this campaign, including an authorization process. So uh, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Is the company doing enough? I think, you know, again, like, Facebook is doing a lot more than most of its competitors are. And so the authorization process, which typically involves you just sort of verifying your address and, and using a piece of ID in order to be able to run political ads, is definitely a step that, in the right direction, right? It's, it makes it much harder for, uh, you know, foreign influence, for example, to take place. Like I can't be in St. Petersburg and run ads in, in Canada uh, in the same way that I might have been able to a few years ago. Um, you know, again, I think where we were looking to, to get to is a place where that certainly like people who are actually running for office can can really elevate the level of trust they have with voters. So you know for sure that like, you know, an ad you see, which is talking about a particular hot button political issue, uh, comes from someone where you you know they're standing behind that message. You know, they are transparent in that they are, you know, particularly if they're spending lots of money, 
they're transparent in the way they're doing that and, and that you they can be held to account through you know traditional mechanisms you know newspapers journalists and so on can everyone go and ask them questions who are you what, what are you doing why are you doing this uh, i think at the moment we haven't quite reached that standard of, of transparency it's it, you know it's still described in some circles as kind of the wild west i mean how how do you how do you characterize where we are in this space now? Like, has it you know? I know we're we're slower to the change than you'd like to see, but is it still pretty much a wide open field for manipulation? I mean, there are still uh, loopholes that 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 you can walk through. I mean, you know, if you're a sophisticated actor, there's nothing really to stop you at least moving your money into Canada and then running your ads. From there, right? I mean, it, you know, like there are ways around this, and there are limits to what transparency can do, and there are limits to the obligations of, uh, you know, what a company like Facebook or Twitter, whoever can can kind of live up to, you know, particularly as they try and do this uh, in every country in the world. So, you know, there are gaps. Uh, there are things we would still like to see. We're definitely in a better place than we were in in 2017, for example, 2016, 2017. Um, you know, some of that is the law, some of that is the companies uh, doing things unilaterally. I think we'd like to get to a place where we think much more carefully about like, well, what should democracy look like in the internet age? How should it work? And then what kind of systems do we want to be able to protect the integrity of the of the debates we have? You know, the, you know, democracy is a great thing. It should flourish. It should have lots of voices in it. But we should also be able to trust who those voices are. We should probably try and keep the influence of money out to the, to the, you know as much as we possibly can. Um, you know, so what are the systems and and kind of guardrails around that that we want? And that's a that's a very big conversation and quite a long-term one, but um, you know we've only begun to scratch the surface of that. I think. Okay, a couple of points to finish on here. What do you see as the biggest risks between now and Election Day in Canada, October 21st, uh, as millions of Canadians are targeted on social media uh, on some of these big issues, such as climate change, cost of living, immigration? Sometimes they're very divisive and very polarizing. What do you see as the big risks? I mean, I think actually the risks tend to be domestic, right? I, you know, one of the things about social media is it is this great sort of torrent of of everyone's opinion, and and you know you can go viral still, and you can be heard in a way that maybe you you wouldn't have been heard ten or twenty years ago. Um, you know, that means the debates are a lot a lot more uncontrolled than they were, but it also means there's this opportunity for malign actors and networks, often within the country, right? So you have a particularly strong perspective on a on a viewpoint. They'll run some ads. They might coordinate some pages together. Um, you know, they might work on pushing certain items through the news agenda and showing that it has, you know, it's trending or it has popularity and those sorts of things. So I think we need to be very, you know, approach uh, the political debates we see with a certain healthy skepticism, really. And I think that's what Again, you're you're looking for in an election campaign anyway, but you know a lot of people on the internet are very uncertain about what they're seeing, and I think the more we can do to try and help them through that journey about evaluating what good and bad information is uh, and where it's coming from, you know, we'll have better elections, we'll have better campaigns, and, and social media might actually prove to be a, a real positive force in that front. Let's finish on that by maybe delving a little deeper into it. How how can a Canadian voter be more savvy and discerning in how? how they use social media and consume information, or in particular, uh, over the next few weeks here in this country during the election campaign? I mean, I think, you know, it's important people slow down. I mean, there's, there's nothing quite like refreshing your feeds endlessly and, and, you know, new and outrageous things appearing in front of your eyes the whole time to be, to be excited. But I think there's certainly a kind of think before you share, think before you comment, are you saying things that you would say to people's face? Uh, are you saying things that you might say to a politician if you were at a meeting? You know, treat this stuff responsibly, humanely, uh, democratically. 
you know, you know, you can insulate yourself against being that person who who jumps to a conclusion and says the wrong thing and and being that person on the internet. So, you know, the I, I think the the simplest appeal is to is to behave well and and in a civil way as you would. Uh, you know, in any other conversation. All right, Sam Jeffers, uh, excellent advice as uh, Canadians get set to be uh, bombarded, uh, sometimes willingly, some, sometimes unwillingly, with lots of messages in this election campaign. Great to get your perspective and, and your advice. Take care. Thanks so much. My recent conversation with Sam Jeffers. That is all for this edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, Vote 2019 edition. But stay tuned. Lots more still ahead on the election campaign.